James chapter 3. Now, we are going to uh, spend this week and next Sunday finishing out these verses that we have been looking at in James chapter 3, beginning in verse 13 and going all the way down to verse 18. I believe, as I've kind of been working my way through the book, that these six verses are the central message that James is putting before us as people who have been called to display a living faith to a dying world. We have been making our way through James fairly quickly. We have been taking big chunks of James. We did chapter one in three sermons. We did the content of chapter two in two sermons. And then we had a sermon on Abraham and a sermon on Rahab. And then we took the entire first half of chapter three in one sermon. So we have been making our way through big chunks of James. And so you'll notice that I have intentionally slowed way down when we came to these six verses. And the reason for that is this. If James is calling us to develop and display a wholehearted, single-focused, fully trusting faith, then these verses are key to the success of that endeavor. And we do know that James is calling us to that, correct? As we've been studying James. In fact, can we say that? Uh, We always say that on Sundays, and so let's say that this morning. James is calling us to cultivate and display a faith that is wholehearted, single-focused, and fully trusting in God and in his word. And so as James begins to unpack these verses, uh, here is what we looked at. We We saw at the very beginning of our time in chapter 3, verse 13, the way wisdom works. How does wisdom work? And we noted that James identified five ideas in relationship to how wisdom from above works. And so let me just reiterate that. Wisdom from above has as its source God. Its nature is spiritual not carnal. It's location. Where is this wisdom located? It's located in the scripture. And how does it function? And you you remember we used an illustration to kind of understand how wisdom from above functions. It functions as the operating system of our heart. And then how does it operate actually? Well, it operates like a transmission. It's the transmission that takes our belief and turns it into behavior. And that's why wisdom matters. And so this morning, I want us to look at the second big idea that James has, not just how wisdom works, but what happens when wisdom goes wrong. What happens when wisdom works, but it's the wrong wisdom? For many, many years, Beth and I had the wonderful privilege of working at a Christian camp and, uh, and helping with a leadership uh, development program for juniors and seniors in high school. And we saw thousands of teenagers come through that program over the 22 or 23 years that we were involved in. And the heart of that program was really to help teenagers, these young people at this critical stage in life, uh, develop strong personal character, spiritual fervency, and and to identify their life mission before God. In fact, we, we had something we always said to them at the very beginning session as we started that two week program. And it went like this. God is on a mission to redeem and restore fallen people to the likeness of his son for the praise of his glory. That's God's mission. That's what God has been doing in their life. That's what God's been doing in your life. And that's what God's doing in my life. And that's really the mission that God is on. God is on a mission to redeem and restore fallen people to the likeness of his son for the praise of his glory. And so once we got that in our head, what are those redeemed and restored people supposed to do? 
And the answer is you're supposed to live your life in ways that cause other people to come to right conclusions about God. That's your life mission. As a person who has been redeemed and restored, God is in the process of restoring you to the likeness of his son. What is the purpose for all of that? Well, the ultimate purpose is the glory of God, but the immediate purpose is for those people, for you and me, to live in ways that cause other people to come to right conclusions about who God is and what God is like. And that brings us to the heart of what James is talking about. If we're going to do that, we're going to have to get into the operating system of our heart and rewire how it works. Let me give you a statement that I think will help us make the case. And I'm going to do it in two parts, all right? And we're actually going to have a slide up there so you can follow along. Here it is. We do what we do, and we say what we say, and we feel what we feel because we think what we think. Can we say that together? I I want us to really sort of feel this, and I want us to hear it, and I want this to sink in as image bearers that have been redeemed and are in the process of being restored to the likeness of God's Son. Let's say it together. We do what we do and say what we say and think what we, feel what we feel because we think what we think. I messed that all up. So we have to say it again. That was a ploy. I just wanted you to say it twice. Here we go. We do what we do and we say what we say and we feel what we feel because we think what we think. So here's my question. Why do we think what we think? And that's the next slide. We think what we think because we believe what we believe. Our thinking comes out of a belief system. We think what we think because we believe what we believe about God, about the world, and about our life. What we say, what we do, what we feel comes out of what we think. And what we think comes out of what we believe. And what we believe has everything to do with our life. It is connected to every corner of our life. Everything that you do, every response that you have is grounded in belief. It comes from something that you have concluded, something that you have embraced, something that you believe about God, about the world, and about our life. And the word that James uses for all of this is wisdom. The wisdom that you embrace shapes everything about your life. And James has been telling us that there are only two kinds of wisdom that are going to shape your beliefs. There is wisdom that comes down from above, and all through chapter 1, he's been introducing us to this wisdom. He tells us that this wisdom is available to anybody who asks as long as they do not have a double-minded heart. That's chapter 1. He tells us that this wisdom from above is a good gift from the Father of lives. It is is the word of truth that brought life forth in you as an image bearer, as the first fruit of God's new creation. It is the perfect law of liberty that perfects you and frees you. And in chapter 2, we discover that it is the royal law, the law of the king, of the kingdom that we have been made part of, and it's located in in the scriptures. And wisdom from above, when that's the operating system of your life, produces certain responses, activities, behaviors, character, speech, because it it touches every part of you. But what happens when a believer chooses the wrong kind of wisdom? And that's what I want to talk about this morning. What happens when wisdom goes wrong? 
What happens to a believer when there is a gap between what he says he believes and what he actually does? You heard Garrett a moment ago describe to our children that, that there are things that we can say with our mouth that are completely undermined by what comes out of our life. And that's James's point. He's already made that point about our faith. In chapter 2, he talked to us and he said, look, it isn't enough for you to say that you have faith. It isn't enough to articulate an orthodox belief system. You can believe all the right things about God. You can actually articulate a very good creed. But if, if that creed isn't alive in you, then it is a dead faith. And a dead faith is powerless to do the one thing that you most needed to do on the day you stand before God. You need the faith that you have embraced to deliver you from God's wrath. And the only kind of faith that will deliver you from God's wrath, the only kind of faith strong enough and powerful enough to do that is a living faith that goes way beyond just what you believe. And James says, how do you know that you have a living faith? You will never know that you have a living faith just because you say all the right words. The evidence that your faith is alive is in the work that it produces. What comes out of your life? How does that living faith cause you to actually believe God and be faithful to his word? And in chapter 3, James is now turning to wisdom, and he's saying the same thing. He is saying to Christians, it isn't enough for you to say that as a believer, I am wise and understanding. If you really are wise and understanding, there ought to be evidence of that wise and understanding life that comes out in your conduct. You can see that in chapter uh, 3, verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? And by the way, I hope that all of you would make that claim. I think, I think that sometimes we, we look at that and we would say, well, I would never make that claim. And I think James is actually going the other way. He is saying, if you are a believer, then you should make the claim, I have a living faith. Every believer should make that claim. And just like every believer should make the claim, I have a living faith, every believer in humility and gratitude to God should say, I am so thankful that I possess a wisdom that has made me wise and understanding. That should be our claim. And James is saying, okay, just like you need to evaluate your claim to a living faith, you also need to evaluate your, your claim to possess wisdom that makes you wise and understanding. Because if that's true, then there ought to be some evidence in your life. That's how wisdom works. But in verse 14, James is going to begin telling us that there is wisdom, and when it works, it actually displays that wisdom has gone wrong in our lives. And so how do we assess all of this? Well, let me give you five things this morning that James is going to put out for us in this text. And we've already talked about one of them. The first is this. James is going to make the case that wisdom is validated by our works, by what it produces in our life. Wisdom is validated by our works. James says, by his good conduct, every believer should be able to claim because of his association with God and the good gift that God has given from heaven, the word of God, the word of truth, the royal law that perfects us, the perfect law of liberty, the scripture, because we possess that as a good gift from God, every believer with humble gratitude to God should be able to say, God, I'm so thankful that you've given me a wisdom that makes me wise and understanding. And James says, all right, now let's evaluate that claim. 
And the evaluation of that claim is going to be the examination of our conduct, what we actually do with our life. And so James is going to give us two areas where, where you can evaluate what's coming out of your life. Because he's making the case that there are only two kinds of wisdom in the world available to you. There is the wisdom that God has given, the body of information that God has placed in his word. And then there is the wisdom that the world has gathered together and by which it operates. If you go back to Psalm 1, you can, you can kind of see this in how the psalmist talks in verse 1. Blessed is the man, remember this, who what? Can we say this together? Blessed is the man who does not walk according to the counsel of the ungodly. So there is counsel, advice, a way of thinking that people who don't know God have. Blessed is a man who doesn't walk according to that counsel. And that counsel, that way of thinking, shows up in behaving. And that's the next thing that the psalmist says. Blessed is a man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor does he what? Stand. That's the idea of living his life positionally. Nor does he stand in the what? In the way of sinners. It's not just that he doesn't embrace the thinking, the, the sort of the mindset of of people who don't know God, he doesn't live, he doesn't operate in the way, in the roadway, in the pathway, on the journey. He doesn't operate the way that people who step over God's law. That's the idea of sinners, transgressors, people not just who miss God's mark, but who actually step over God's boundaries. And then he doesn't sit in the seat of people who what? scorn or mock God. And so right in Psalm 1, you can see there is a way of thinking. There is a way that guides a way of living that, that forms a, a set of values and, uh, and priorities in life by people who don't know or acknowledge God, by people who step over his boundaries, and by people who actually mock his laws and mock his ways and even deny his existence. And that whole way of thinking, James sums up this way, that is wisdom from below. It is the wisdom that you find in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, that the God of the world is using to energize people to do what he wants them to do with their life. And then James says there's another kind of wisdom, and it is the wisdom that comes down from above, and it is good, and it is perfect, and it is freeing, and it is the royal law of God. And so all of a sudden, you see really clearly in James, there are these two kinds of wisdom. And every person on the planet operates from one of these two wisdoms. There isn't a third option. So let's dig a little bit deeper. Everybody on the planet who doesn't know God is bound up in this wisdom. It's the only wisdom they have. Sometimes this wisdom can look really moral. Sometimes unsaved people who don't know God can look very moral because that's what makes life work for them but they're still operating from this wrong wisdom. But people who have been enlightened by God and enlivened by him so that they see the truth of the gospel and they look at Jesus and in the face of Jesus, they see the glory of God and they repent of their sins are taken out of this kingdom and they are put into this kingdom and all of a sudden, This wisdom is implanted in their heart. That's what James 1 said. Receive with meekness the implanted word. So if you're a believer this morning, you have wisdom from above implanted in your heart. You instinctively now have been capacitated to understand and you've been energized by the spirit of God because you have been given a new heart. 
You see what he's saying? And that's why he can say to you and to me as believers, as members of the big kingdom of God with a law from our king, as we live in all the little kingdoms of the world that still operate from the wisdom of the God of the world that they serve, that's why James can say, look at your life and see which wisdom you're operating by. See which wisdom you're operating by. And, and so it shows up in your conduct. In, in, if you're operating from the wisdom from above, your, you, your conduct will consistently be good and beneficial because it comes out of the good wisdom of God. If you are operating from the wisdom from below, your conduct will display unruly and disobedient behavior. That, that's how James is going to picture this. And then he says it doesn't just show up in your conduct. It shows up in your disposition. If your operating system is wisdom from above, here's what your disposition will manifest itself to be. A consistent, gracious humility that eagerly responds to the word of God that has been implanted in you. You see that in verse 13? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. In the meekness that comes when you begin to realize the wisdom of God and what it accomplished and what it has done for you. There's the eager submissiveness that says to God, whatever you have put in your wisdom is what I want to do. Or your your disposition can manifest a very different attitude. It can manifest selfish ambition and bitter jealousy. And it can be marked by arrogance and pride. So here's my question for you this morning. Why would a person who has truly embraced the gospel? I mean, this is a person that James is writing to. He, he has embraced the gospel, um, enlivened by God, enlightened by the Spirit, energized by God's Spirit. Why would such a person choose the world's wisdom as the temporary operating system of their life. Why does that happen? And you can read the Bible, and the Bible actually gives many reasons for this, but James actually focuses in on one. And the reason that James is going to call out to our attention for why somebody in this big kingdom who has been enlivened and enlightened and energized by the Spirit of God that dwells in him and has received the good and perfect gift of wisdom that comes down from above would would set it aside, would sort of would turn off that operating system temporarily and come back over into the operating system of this world and, and plug that operating system in so that they now begin to operate according to this wisdom. Why would somebody from that big kingdom come back and operate this way? And James says, because you have desires that drive you. You have desires that drive you. He's going to talk about these desires in very strong terms. He's going to use a word that means passionate desire. We would use the word craving for this or insatiable, unstoppable, unquenchable craving. Uh, The old word that people used all the time for this was lust. That word in our day typically has been sort of relegated to the sexual arena, but but the word actually can be a dominating, driving desire for something. And James says when those dominating, driving desires are not met by God, when God says no or not now to one of those desires, you either have to submit to the wisdom of God that has said no to that or... You're going to unplug from that wisdom and you're going to download this wisdom because you want what you want. And we're going to see what this looks like when we get into chapter four because these unmet desires produce, when we plug into the wrong wisdom, a world of horrific things in our lives and in the lives of others. 
And so that's what he's talking about when James sort of articulates the idea that false wisdom fuels sinful desires because it is fueled by those desires. So what are the the specific desires that James talks about? Well, he's going to list two of them, bitter envy and selfish ambition. Bitter envy is a sinful zealousness for my personal agenda. It's the, the word zeal there, the word jealous can actually be a good word. It's used, for example, uh, to describe white hot passion or, or earnest zealousness for something or someone in a righteous way. For example, God is zealous for his people in Zechariah 1.14. He is extraordinarily jealous for his name in Ezekiel 39.25. Or it could be the zeal of a righteous leader for the honor of God and the holiness of God and the purity of God's people like we saw in Numbers 25, verses 10 through 11. But James makes it really clear that that's not the kind of zeal he's talking about because he puts a word in front of it. The kind of zeal that he's talking about is bitter. It it is a sinful zeal. It is a sinful envy that selfishly seeks what is best for oneself regardless of how it impacts other people. It's what we feel when we see someone else get what we wish we had or what we think we deserve. Now, there are plenty of examples of that in the world. I want to give you two in our Bible that describe what goes on when bitter envy shows up in the lives of people who claim to know the true God of heaven. And so let me take you to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. This is right after the day of Pentecost. Jesus has manifested himself as the Messiah to his people. I mean, the entire Old Testament has pointed to this moment when Jesus would arrive and he has arrived. And it is manifest, it is clear that Jesus of Nazareth is in fact the son of God. And so the apostles begin to preach and people begin to respond. In Acts chapter 5, beginning in verse 12 and going all the way through verse 33, we find that the high priest... And all who were with him were filled with jealousy. That's in verse 17. They were filled with jealousy and they arrested the apostles and they put them in jail. And then God vindicated them by miraculously liberating them, releasing them from the the, the Roman jail that they had been imprisoned in. Now you would think, that a miracle of this nature would have melted the hearts of Jewish leaders who knew the Torah and who were waiting for Messiah and to see a miracle of this nature, you would think that it would melt their hearts. But instead, they were enraged and they sought to kill these men. That's what bitter envy looks like. You say, well, that was the, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. Well, there's a second example, and it's in Acts 13, verses 13 through 44, and it has to do with the first missionary journey. Now, now these disciples had grown a church in Jerusalem, and out of that church, they sent forth the first missionaries, and on the first missionary journey, they landed in a city called Antioch, not the Antioch that was in, in, uh, in, in near Jerusalem. It was the Antioch far away in Turkey called Antioch of Pisidia. And so they land there, and the first thing that happens is they go to this, on the Sabbath day, they go to the local synagogue. And as they're sitting there, the ruler of the synagogue spots them and realizes that they are Jewish rabbis, Paul especially, and says, hey, brothers, if you have a word of encouragement, please speak it. And so Paul stood up, and he began to preach the good news of Messiah's coming and Messiah is releasing them from sin and also freeing them from all the things that the law of Moses could never free them from. And the people were enthralled. 
And they came back and said to them at the end of that service, look, can you come back next week and tell us more? And look at verse 42. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, I mean, this had never happened. Those people don't come to hear us. How in the world did they come to hear this visiting rabbi? When the people, when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And folks, if it can happen in the heart of people who are familiar with God's word and God's expectations, do you think that bitter envy can happen in a church like ours? All of a sudden, a spiritual teacher starts to draw more attention and more favor, and people start talking about that person more than they talk about you. Or this person's giftedness is recognized, and and somebody else says, well, I wish my giftedness were recognized. I should be. Instead of thinking about the incredible beauty of a ministry where there are so many places to serve, we become envious when we see someone doing what we wish we could do or receiving gratitude that we wish we could receive. And Paul says, that is the seed of bitter envy. And bitter envy leads somewhere. It leads to selfish ambition. It, it is a sinful desire or for personal benefit or advancement. It's the idea that you often find in political set, uh, settings where someone is trying to advance a particular party or a particular person or a particular position. And the reason they are lobbying for that, the reason they are sort of moving for that person or that position or that party is because they know as that position advances or that party advances or that person advances, they will advance also. That's the idea of selfish ambition. There is a sinful competitiveness with a subtle undermining of another to gain personal advantage. This happens when a person or a group has a particular theological agenda or a personal preference that they want to see advanced in a body like this or an institution. And they resort to partisanship, the subtle undermining of somebody to make sure that their particular position or their particular preference gains ground so that they themselves will benefit. This is the idea of the term that Paul uses here for selfish ambition. And it happens all the time in the world. I mean, if you want to see it, just show up on any election cycle and you will see it lived out in the world. This is how the world operates. We're going to say this about you because we want to make sure everybody sees the bad things about you so they'll vote for me. I mean, just watch the ads. Oh, and yeah, but, but you know, no, I mean, that's how the world works. And then here we are in the church and that mind and that operating system starts plugging in and it, it gets real ugly when it shows up in the church. And that brings us to the third thing this morning, and that is this. So where in the world does all of this come from, and, and how do I recognize it when it's in my life? And Paul says, all right, let, let's talk about how to recognize it. It shows up in the outworking of your life. And, and, and there are four things that, that if they're going on in our life, if they're going on in my life, or if they're go- going on in your life, This is a pretty good indication that you've unplugged from wisdom from above and you've downloaded as an operating system wisdom from below. And it is now starting to fuel your life. It's it's now moving from an operating system to more like a transmission and it's now fueling and facilitating behavior. You're actually starting to drive your life by this and what's coming out are these four things. And the first of them is your disposition. Paul said this, or James said this rather, if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not boast and be false to the truth. The idea there is arrogance. An arrogant confidence that boldly asserts one's own wisdom. James says if you want to see what this looks like 
and you want to spot it in a person or you want to spot it in a group or you want to spot it in your own life, look for arrogance. Look for pride. Look for someone who is arrogantly, confidently asserting his own wisdom above that of anybody else. And I would just say this to you as a church. Those of us who teach and preach God's word to you are particularly prone to this. We are particularly prone to this. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, James actually said this. Look at verse 3, chapter 1. Not many of you should become what? Teachers. And then he's going to spend the first part of chapter 3 talking about what preachers and teachers use all the time. You know what we use all the time? Our tongue. And it is very easy for people in our position to mask arrogance in how we teach. And we can subtly exalt ourselves as the unique teachers of truth instead of humbly coming before you and saying, this is what God said. And I have to embrace it every bit as much as you have to embrace it. And in some cases, when God begins to speak about particular things, I may actually have to embrace it as your pastor more than you embrace it because it's a problem in my life where it may not be a problem in yours. And I'm just trying to help you understand why James is coming at this so hard. Those of us who preach and teach are particularly prone to the subtle plugging in of a wisdom that comes from the world when we want a church to do something that we want them to do or to take a position that we want them to take or to go somewhere that we want them to go because we use this all the time. We can be very skilled at being arrogant. And then James says it shows up somewhere else. It shows up in our speech. Do not be arrogant and do not use your mouth to be false to the truth. You, you can't say to somebody, I am wise and I'm operating from the wisdom of God when actually you're operating from wisdom of the world. If you give people the impression that wi- this wisdom is actually God's wisdom, you have deceived them and you've deceived yourself. And, and that's why James all through the first two chapters has warned us not to be deceived. Don't be deceived about this or don't be deceived about that. The only way that you and I are not going to be deceived is to let God's wisdom speak clearly and fully so that we are fully informed by what God has to say. So it shows up in our disposition. It shows up in our speech. And then it shows up in our relationship. Notice what he says. Where jealousy and selfish ambition exist and are at work, there will be disorder. There will be disorder. This is the third time James uses this term. He uses it in chapter 1, verse 18, when he talks about unstable. Or in verse 8, rather, when when he talks about unstable. In verse uh, 8 of chapter 3, it's it's the idea of uncontrollable tongue. It's an unstable life, and it's an uncontrolled tongue. And here, in chapter 3, Verse 16, it it has to do with unruly or out of order. In other words, when I'm operating from this wisdom, the wisdom of the world, it's going to affect my earthly relationships. And my earthly relationships are going to be disordered. They're going to be out of order. There's going to be conflict. There's going to be relational tension. There's going to be brokenness that doesn't get resolved. And the, and the reason is that I have chosen to operate for a temporary time from the wrong set of wisdom. And that all leads to the fourth indicator, and that is this. My conduct will be disobedient. Every vile practice the unwillingness to be ruled by God, the unwillingness to be shaped by his word leads to to every sinful practice 
that comes out of the passions of my flesh. And Romans chapter 1, verse 28 through 32, talk about this. They were filled. People who have rejected God's wisdom are filled with all manner of unrighteousness. And then Paul just lists a ton of things. Evilness, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slander, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boasters, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, Though they know God's righteous degree that those who practice these things deserve death, they not only do them, but give approval to those that do them. You say, well, that's talking about unsaved people. Well, actually, Paul says the same thing in Galatians chapter 5 when he talks about the fruit of the Spirit and the works of the flesh that are manifested in the life of a believer. And so James is picking up this idea So what is it about wisdom from below that makes it so deadly? And that's the fourth thing that we're going to see here. uh, James says this this wisdom does not come down from above, but it is, and he's going to describe it three ways. It is earthly. It is earthbound. It, It is completely shaped in a way of thinking that discounts God, that ignores God, and that denies his right to speak. It is earthbound wisdom. And then James says, it is fleshy. It is natural. It is devoid of any influence or any power or any working of the spirit. Paul said, walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And when you say, I'm unplugging from the wisdom from above and I'm unplugging from the spirit that energizes me to do that wisdom, the only option you have is wisdom from below. And when you decide what you decide from wisdom from below, it it is going to lead you to do things that are demonic you say, well, are you saying I'm going to be demon-possessed? No. I'm saying that you're going to do the kinds of things that the devil does. He is a murderer, and he is a liar. And that is what is going to end up marking a person, a group, a nation, a world that operates by this wisdom. Now, we've had an example of that this week. We've had an example of that this week. 49 years ago, the Supreme Court made a decision to legalize the taking away of the life of an unborn infant and made it a right. And 49 years later, the Supreme Court, the sitting Supreme Court, decided we're going to reverse that decision. Now, we all know that's not going to stop abortion. But we ought to rejoice that the leaders that sit on that court made a decision to line up where at least the scriptures line up and say this is no longer going to be legal. Now the states have to decide it. And it's been amazing to me to watch the response of highly educated people who lead our country to that decision, including our own president who we pray for. And we respect because of the office he occupies. But it's been stunning to me to watch the wisdom that comes out of the mouth of these people. And it's not just in in certain places where we've been seeing the riots. It's actually coming out of the mouth of our political leaders. And it's not just the political leaders of our country. The, the, The national, the global leaders around the world have been articulating how, how incredibly foolish that decision was. So let me ask you a question. Where is that thinking coming from that dominates highly educated, highly intentional, highly 
influential and highly successful people who have climbed up to the very pinnacles of power in our country, in our states, in our legislature, in our government, and really even in the world. How can all of them collectively together look at that decision to to try to stop the murder of unborn infants and say, that is foolish. That's a step back for women. And there's only one answer. They are being driven by the wrong kind of wisdom. I mean, that's the truth. And if it can happen in our country, it can happen in our churches. And that's the last thing we'll say and close here. How does it actually show up in God's people? And there's an Old Testament example of this in Numbers chapter 14, verses 1 through 24, when the nation newly formed, having experienced the miracles of God, are led out by Moses into the wilderness and listen to what they said as they went along. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept and all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, would that we had died back in Egypt instead of dying in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land so that we would fall by the swords? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose another leader and go back to Egypt. And God says to them, these 10 times have you rebelled against me. Where's that coming from? I mean, that's coming from the wrong wisdom. They despised God's provision. They doubted God's promise. They disregarded God's leaders. They disobeyed God's commands. And ultimately, they were disqualified from God's blessing. You say, well, that was the Old Testament. Well, let me give you a New Testament example in Acts chapter 4. Early church, first bat out of the box. They're meeting together in Acts chapter 4. A man named Barnabas sells a piece of property, brings the money to the church, deposits, and everybody is thankful and grateful, and Barnabas is given a nickname. He's given the nickname Barnabas. Oh, that was his name. No, that was his nickname. And the word was encourager. You're such an encourager, Barnabas. And there were two people who saw that. And they thought, Uh Aha. And they had a piece of property. And this husband and wife got together and they said, let's sell this piece of property and let's give a portion of the proceeds to the church so that we will get a nickname like Barnabas. But let's keep the majority of it so that we get to do our own stuff. And that's what they did in Acts chapter 5. And so they came and they sold the property and they brought the money and they put it at the apostles' feet. And Peter looks at Ananias and he said this, why has Satan filled your heart? The word fill there is the idea of control. Why has Satan controlled your heart? We could say it this way, what did Satan use to control this man and his wife. And I'm going to submit to you that it was envy and ambition. It was envy and ambition. And somewhere along the line, Satan got them to unplug from the wisdom from above and to operate from the wisdom from below, and it caused them devastation. And by the way, folks, even though God doesn't actually sometimes take away our life the way he took away Ananias and Sapphira's life, it shouldn't calm our hearts down because God hasn't changed about how he feels. So, Pastor, how do I I respond to all this? What, What do I do with a message like this? I am a Christian. I am understanding of the wisdom from above. I know where it is. I know it's in the Scripture 
but I live in the world. I'm bombarded by this wisdom, and, and I am afraid that this wisdom has made more of, in, more of an inroad into my life than I care to admit. Because as you've been preaching and as I've been listening, the Spirit of God has begun to help me see, you know what, there is pride, there is arrogance. You are not joyfully responding and submitting to God's Word. And, Pastor, I really am not. And it's showing up in my relationships. It's showing up in my marriage. It's showing up with my kids. I'm an angry person, I'm a bitter person, I'm a frustrated person. I I live just torn up inside because I just don't ever seem to get what I want. And when I talk to God about it, he he never gives it to me. And I go to church and I see people and it's like God always blesses them and they always have their prayers answered and and I'm just, I am bound up. And James has an amazing piece of advice to you. And it's the advice I'm going to leave you with. Draw near to God. Draw near to God. Hebrews says, if we're going to please God, we need to know and believe that he exists. Well, you you know that he exists as a Christian or you wouldn't be a Christian but you also know that he is the rewarder of those who seek him. And so we're going to talk more about what it looks like to draw near to God next week, but here's what I want to ask you this morning. Are you willing to take the first step and say before God, God, I don't know what it all means yet. I don't know where it's going to take me, and I don't know what it's going to cost me. But I need to unplug from that wisdom because it's destroying me. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to draw near to God. I'm going to humble my heart and I'm going to draw near to God. And I'm going to start talking to him. And I'm not going to make excuses. I'm just going to tell him, God, this is what's been going on. Yeah, but he already knows that. No, 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 you need to say it. You need to say it. Yeah, but, but, but God's omniscient, so I shouldn't have to. No, you're not trying to inform God of what he already knows. You're agreeing with God about what he's already said about your wisdom. It's foolish. You've been trusting in your own wisdom. You've not been trusting the Lord with all of your heart. You've been leaning on your own understanding. And at some point, we just have to Stop. We've got to put the car in neutral. We've got to turn the computer off. We've got to shut the operating system down. We've got to get the gear ship out of drive, and we've just got to stop, and we've got to say to God, God, I am in a mess. Relationally, personally, dispositionally, behaviorally, I am in a bad place. And I'm here because I, I plugged in the wrong operating system. And I'm coming to you help. That's all I want you to do today. There's more to come, but that's all I want you to do today, where you'd be saying to the Lord, Lord, I want help. And all week, I want you to read James 4. I want you to read James 4. Father, I pray